Warning! This episode of The Secret Cinema contains discussions of disturbing and adult content. So, heads up! So what do you think? Well, I'm not really sure what you're trying to say. It's funny, I suppose. But it seems glib and facile to just make fun of how idiotic these people are. I'm not making fun. Uh, I'm showing it as it really is. You're showing how superior you are to your subject. No, but I, I, I like my subject. I like these people. No, you don't. Yes, I do. I love them. The camera works nice. Thanks. I'll tell Mike. Welcome to The Secret Cinema, the podcast that makes mountains out of movie molehills. I'm Paolo Carone, my co-host is Carrie Chafee, and on this episode we're joined again by Wade to discuss Todd Salanz's 2001 film Storytelling, a dark satire as meta as it is verbose. Our discussion runs long, so I'll keep this short. Here's Carrie Chafee with the plot summary. Storytelling is broken into two segments, fiction and nonfiction. In fiction, a college student and amateur writer, Vi, finds herself in a sexual encounter with her professor. In nonfiction, Toby, a struggling filmmaker, makes a documentary about a disaffected high school student named Scooby. Now, the first segment, fiction, is fairly short, so we discuss it pretty thoroughly in the episode. The following clip is from the first creative writing class scene, and we hear Marcus, played by Leo Fitzpatrick, concluding his autobiographical short story, which the class then evaluates. If you've ever taken a creative writing class, this scene will likely ring painfully familiar, but consider also the way Salons uses this as an opportunity to comment on the very nature of criticism. By the way, this clip and all the clips used in this episode had to be trimmed for pacing. Just imagine 30 more seconds of uncomfortable silence in each one. But Salanza's unique approach to writing dialogue should still be apparent in the pacing and the general structure of the back and forth. Here's that first clip. It was as if he could walk like a normal person. His legs didn't swing. His arms didn't spaz away. He wasn't a freak anymore, for she made him forget his affliction. No more cerebral palsy. From now on, CP stood for cerebral person. He was a cerebral person. I thought that was really good, Marcus. Really moving and emotional yeah i thought it was really emotional too and i mean really good word choices it kind of reminded me a little of faulkner but east coast and disabled or flannery o'connor she had multiple sclerosis and borges he was blind Updike has psoriasis. Um, maybe I'm wrong, 
but um, I'm afraid I found the whole thing to be a little trite. Its earnestness is, well, uh, it's a little embarrassing. And those adjectives are flat-footed and redundant. I'm sorry, I mean, anyway, don't, <laughs> what do I know? Don't even listen to what I say. I mean. Anyone else? Catherine is right. The story's a piece of shit. The film's second segment, the longer segment, nonfiction, primarily follows Scooby, played by Mark Webber. Scooby's a closeted high school stoner who often clashes with, well, everybody, but primarily his authoritarian father, who's played by the great, great actor John Goodman. Uh, the following clip, which is a dinnertime dispute about the Holocaust, doesn't tie into the plot, really, but it perfectly illustrates the atmosphere of Scooby's family life, as well as being another great example of Todd Salanza's satirical voice. Here's that clip. We're studying the Holocaust in social studies. Oh, yeah? We did the same thing last year also. How was the class? I'm supposed to watch Schindler's List for homework. It was like almost four hours. I'm supposed to write a report on survivors. You know any survivors, Dad? Mm. Do I know any? Personally? Well, technically, your Zeta is a survivor. He was in a concentration camp? Well, no, but he had to escape the Nazis. But I thought he came over to America before the war. Well, he did, with his family, but his cousins, they had to stay, and they were all killed, and if he'd stayed, he would have been killed. So in my book, he's a survivor. Even though it was only his cousins that were killed. Oh, but that could have happened to him or, or to me if I'd been alive, or you. Or me? You mean then we're all survivors? Well, yes. If it hadn't been for Hitler, he wouldn't have had to leave Europe. We would have been European. But then, in a sense, since you would have never have met Dad if your family had stayed in Europe, if it weren't for Hitler, none of us would have been born. Get the hell out of here. But as bad as Scooby's father is, his youngest brother Mikey is much worse. Something that only comes out when Mikey talks with the family's maid, Consuelo, played by Lupe Antiveros. In this clip, Mikey eats cereal as Consuelo cleans the kitchen, and what starts with an innocent question about high school turns into a pretty brutal depiction of white privilege in action. Here's that clip. What did you do in high school? I did not go to high school. Weren't there high schools in El Salvador? We had to work. My family was poor. Must have been hard being poor. I'm still poor. Hmm. But Consuelo, even though you're poor, don't you have any hobbies or interests or anything? No, Mickey. But like, 
What do you like to do when you're not working? I am always working. But when you're not, like now, what do you like to do? This is work. But it's not like real work. This is just babysitting. You know, your job's really not so bad, if you think about it. You should smile more. And finally, for any of you who aren't familiar with Bell and Sebastian, here's Scooby Driver, one of their few contributions to the final film soundtrack. Considering the pace of the previous clips, you can understand why Bell and Sebastian's music, as great as it is, wasn't an ideal match for the film. So, enjoy Scooby Driver, and we'll meet you on the other side with our discussion of storytelling. I'm coming over in the wrong direction I only want to be the center of your attention But long enough to show you a more of trouble that you take I want to see the way that you portray A boy who's gonna try to change his life today isn't just straight out awful or clearly bad with good elements. So uh, <laughs> what do you guys think? Wade, what, what is your overall opinion of storytelling? I guess like, kind of like you said, it's, I appreciate watching a movie that has like genuine, genuine cinematic merits rather than, <laughs> you know, <laughs> man of the year, which is just utter garbage and uh, rules of engagement, which like, like you said, had moments where it was, like, really, really good. Like, at least, like, competent filmmaking, like, interspersed with kind of racism and other things <laughs> that are really delightful. But I like the movie overall. It's obviously very lumpy in places. Structurally, it's it's clearly not complete. And we can talk about that later, how this really isn't an incom a complete movie. There's a whole section that's been left out. But overall, I thought it was, it was very good. It was that typical, very idiosyncratic Todd Solomon's satire. I agree with that. Gary, what did you think? Uh, I think that storytelling is a very smart film. I think it has, as Wade put it, cinematic value, which is nice. <laughs> um, I think that it makes some great points, but I've said this, I said this before we watched it for the second time, of all the films that we've watched, this was the one that I was kind of least looking forward <laughs> to watching again. Well, I think that really speaks, like, no, if you told that to Todd Solins, he would be like, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I found a quote from him where he said, my movies aren't for everyone, especially people who like them. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and uh, I actually think that a great movie can be a movie that you watch once and then you don't need to see again. There are a lot of really great movies that I've watched and then I think, okay, I, I probably won't ever watch that again. Do you have an example? Um, the only example I can think of right off the top of my head is, of course, like a really gory movie. I really liked Saving Private Ryan when I saw it. <laughs> but I, when I watched it, I thought to myself, I'm never going to watch this again. No, I you mean, don't need to see that movie. Yeah, once you watch it, you're like, that's okay. Good, that's a good example. I got it. Yeah. I, I get it. I, uh, and, and I won't, I, I, that's not necessarily a parallel comparison to storytelling. It's like because funny games is more like a parallel oh, comparison. Yeah, because, <laughs> because Pri Saving Private Ryan, like I said, you watch it and you're like, okay, I get it. I get exactly what Steven Spielberg is trying to communicate. It is a very worthwhile experience to watch because it gives you a perspective that you might not necessarily ever experience yourself. On the horrors of war. <laughs> On the horrors of war. <laughs> but it's not something where I'm going to see it again, because I'm not going to seek it out and be like, oh, I really want to watch this gory <laughs> war film again. I'm really in the mood for saving Friday. But at the... At meal. <laughs> the reason I say it's not a parallel comparison to storytelling is because storytelling, at least if you watch it again, you can get more out of it. It's uh, a dense movie. Yeah, it's a, yeah. definitely a dense movie, but it's not really a movie where after you watch it the first time, you necessarily want to watch it again. Um... <laughs> So that's how I feel <laughs> there, about yeah. it. All right. <laughs> that's a long-winded way to say how I feel about that's it. That's rare. Wade, you using the term lumpy to describe this movie is a very perfect yeah. <laughs> word in a lot of ways. And I'm a, probably the biggest Todd Salon's fanboy, apologist, defender <laughs> out there. I've seen every one of his movies, most of them at least ten times. I've seen this probably about ten times. Uh, Happiness is one of my top ten favorite movies ever. Yeah. I really, really love his voice to the extent that like a lot of stuff that I can... I can watch storytelling and see stuff that is clearly faulty or I, I'm not sure what he's saying or I see little mistakes and they really don't matter because ultimately no one makes a movie like him and no one tries to address the points he does mm -hmm. and his style is so specific that I pretty much am just a sucker for his style. I, I know what I'm going to get with his movies. His auteurism is very undeniable and so yeah I, I realize I'm just complimenting him so I'll say yeah storytelling in the ways in which it's flawed, I feel like it says a lot about him as a filmmaker, more so than other films where he's yeah. able to successfully make exactly what he wanted, especially because storytelling is so, what's the word? Uh, pointed. Pointed. Um, Meta. Yeah, yes. Very, there we go. Yeah. That's the Meta. word. Meta. Uh, yeah, it's about him and his work on top of yes, other things. Yes, definitely. It's very self-referential. Yeah. And he has a very clear directorial standard. Yes. There the were movie. so many times in the film where lines were spoken by characters that I thought just were coming out of his Todd Salon's mouth. Yeah. He definitely has <laughs> some parroting going on. Yeah. yeah. This movie and Palindromes... Those two movies, because his first two movies got a lot of negative criticism for how dark and harsh they are, he has a lot of characters in this and palindromes flat out be ciphers for ideas or symbols. And Some people are characters in storytelling, but other people are very clear-cut 
representatives for points of view or mm -hmm. social elements that he needs to criticize. But he at least, he does a much better job than what most people would do where the the stand-in is just like a straw man. Mm -hmm. And he there you could definitely accuse him of some straw man arguments, but I feel like he's not setting up typical straw man. He tends to make normal people or people that would be like considered normal mainstream people that you'd see in stars of like a sitcom or something. He tends to make them the straw men and then the weird people who would be treated in a very reductive, negative fashion. Otherwise, they get all the development and focus and humanity. And I really like that. I, I, no other filmmaker does that to the extent that he does. He really, yeah, he gives the limelight to the gremlins, <laughs> basically. <laughs> he feeds the gremlins after He does after feed the gremlins. I mean, all characters in Todd Solondz's movies are, are despicable and in very, very specific ways. Yeah. But he and does he, give a lot more humanity to... He, like, really tries to force you into a position where you end up empathizing with that. I mean, ha that's what is amazing. The miracle of happiness is oh, the gosh. characters he yes. finds the even the smallest amount of empathy for. Are the most horrific. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So this movie's broken up into two sections, fiction in nonfiction, and like Wade said, there's an, a third section that was filmed and cut out of the movie called Autobiography, and because that segment has never seen the light of day and no one really wants to talk about it, I could not find online what it was about, so we're just going to stick to the two that exist in the movie. Maybe uh, we can speculate. Yeah, we can <laughs> based on like what little clues we do know. But, James Vanderbeek and you know, closeted yeah. gay football players. Yes. Basically, that's what and someone at something said that uh, there was like a brown bunny esque sex scene in it, which I mean, unless that means that like James Vanderbeek gave someone a blowjob or gets a real blowjob in the movie, I don't understand what else that could mean. But anyway, uh, that would be the second blowjob in this movie. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, it's uh, a Todd Solid's film. Yeah. <laughs> Be glad that no one came on screen in this movie. <laughs> which... <laughs> well, technically some of Blair did. Yeah, but there's like a very literal way that I mean yeah. that. Uh, Okay, so the first segment, the shorter of the two segments, is fiction. It's basically a short story creative writing class and the interactions between the main character, Vi, or V? By uh, played by Selma Blair, her um, boyfriend, on and off boyfriend Marcus, who's played by Leo Fitzpatrick from Kids, the professor Robert Wisdom, and then there's the creative writing class, and there's kind of people in that class that speak up. The only really noteworthy one is named Catherine, uh, but other than that, yeah, it's just... the redheaded girl is from. Uh, I remember from a bunch of stuff. Oh she's... yeah, Maria Thayer. She's um, uh, she's on Thirty in... Rock. She is the blind girl that Kenneth goes on the date with well, and in, uh, stop right. showing off.com <laughs> she's also Kenneth's wife in Forgetting Sarah Marshall yeah it's always weird the the actors he gets in his movies it's, the it's let's stop for a moment okay. and just like talk about the amazing cast that is in yes oh yeah incredible cast and really great performances too spectacular I yeah. mean like his perform the performances are always really great in his movies but they're great in a way that doesn't get a lot of attention because of what they have to do. The content kind of right. outweighs. It's definitely played down. Yeah. Well, you're never going to get an Oscar acting in a Todd Solomon's movie. No. Yeah. <laughs> never. But Paul, yeah, I mean, well, I don't want to jump ahead, so we'll stick to the performances in the first one. Um, 
I kind of shot myself in the foot by that segue because the performances in the first segment aren't as strong as the, in the second. Segment. Yeah, they're very mannered and uh, restrained because the symbolism is so forthright. Well, and, yeah, yeah, that's it's a first segment fiction. It's it's so short, it's less than half an hour. Yeah. it's like maybe twenty five minutes long. Something like that. And it yeah. feels like a primer for the rest of the movie. Yeah. yeah. That's where the characters are really stand-ins for Todd Solondz. Yeah. Parroting about narrative technique and whatever representation within fit. And yeah. what good storytelling is. Yeah. Right. And there's the rough arc of uh, Marcus has a short story. He reads it in class. Is essentially shot down by the professor. Vi, Vi and Marcus have an argument where they essentially break up. Vi hunts down the professor. They have sex. And Do they have anal sex? No, I think it's just like really rough vaginal sex. Okay. <laughs> but, um, and then... I mean, it doesn't really matter. It's no. just... It just curious. It, it really could be, but, uh, it's, yeah. <laughs> Ancillary. I, I assume in a Todd Salon's movie, if it w- if it was... He would sex make speech. sure it's that you know oh, it's okay. Yeah, he's very particular. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and then Vi writes a story about the sexual encounter, and then it is critiqued by the class. That's essentially the whole thing. But in within that, there's a lot of little, a lot of little ways he tries to break down criticism. It seems like if there's any yeah. one main thing that the fiction segment's about, it's about the act of criticizing fiction, and and by that metric also interpreting fiction and the way in which, regardless of where fiction comes from, it entirely changes once you actually see the work, and also that your interpretation is limited by your experience, your point of view. The woman who, well, Maria Thayer, when she criticizes Vi's story, she says, why do people have to write about such perverted characters? I know I'm sounding like a prude, but I was raised in a way that, dot, dot, dot. But yeah, like emphasizing that like she's offended, but even she can't stop herself from putting the caveat that it's her it's voice her was fault. raised, yeah. yeah, and that's her background. The so, mo- but most of the movie, the the most of the segment, the segments with Vi and the professor, all of that is basically the story that gets criticized in the two class sessions that we see. Well, and it's it's interesting that the two fictional stories that are criticized in the class are two sexual experiences that the main character in the first segment has. Well, wait, is is the cerebral palsy one about... Oh, I like, just assumed it was. Oh, it's, it's talking about their, I think, their relationship. Their relationship. Not necessarily a sexual experience. Yeah. Know. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, I, well, I wrote this down, too, in terms of breaking down the, the core argument of this section. When Marcus reads his story, uh, most of the people very sensitively compliment it. And, uh, and then the professor shuts it down. But one of the key things that the professor says is... And the subtitle of your story, The Rawness of Truth, is that supposed to be a joke or are you just being pretentious? And both variations of that statement essentially imply that that's bullshit. it's a bullshit statement to say the rawness of truth about his story. And then later, that same professor, we watch him uh, fuck Selma Blair very roughly. I don't, the N-word is said very uh, a lot in that scene, uh, and I, I'm... I'm just being very white right now. <laughs> like tiptoeing around <laughs> it. I just, uh, but basically, yeah. We can, we can still talk about it. Yeah. Like, what just, happens in the scene? This, you know. So, um, yeah. So the professor basically, um, he's, he dominates her without actually 
hurting her. Uh, like he's, it's not a scene where he's whole, like handcuffing her and raping her. He is asserting his dominance through silence and body position and things like that. And it's like BDSM sex. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so she gets naked and he makes her bend up against the wall and says, makes her say, N-word, fuck me. And so over and over, over, and, over and over again to the point where she's like screaming it over and over and over again. And uh, so it kind of sets up this dialectic of his, the Marcus's story is bad because its idea of truth is wrong because it's it's facile, it's simplistic, it's cliched, and therefore it's not truth. You can't be cliched and true, and at least not raw in your truth. But when we see the truth of their sex scene, it's raw and brutal and comfortable because it's the truth. It's essentially that's what Salons is setting up. This idea that, yeah, truth is raw, rawness is uncomfortable, and it's something that gets forced in your face. You can't just tell somebody that truth is raw. God, I don't know a less pretentious way to say that, but that's that's what seems to be he, what he's setting up. Well, then, yeah, I think it's important to note that both stories are shitty, right? Yeah. Right? The ones, yeah. Like you said, the one story is shitty because it's full of cliches and there's something kind of hollow about it. Not yeah. true, not raw mm-hmm. about it. And the second story is shitty because... Basically, it's 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 kind of an unadorned retelling mm-hmm. of this very kind of violent sex scene, the sexual experience that Vi had with the teacher. Well, and they also say Catherine's criticism of the short story basically says, um, which is actually very apt, by very the way. very apt. <laughs> but she she the the two words I wrote down the best summed it up uh, is when she refers to the mandingo cliche of my story because of the she's the white girl having sex uh with a black man and there's clearly the implicit fear on her part uh, mm-hmm. when she goes in the apartment and sees the pictures of Catherine naked tied up and everything she isn't like oh my god i have to get out of here she says don't be racist because she is afraid but she's not afraid of the situation she's afraid of him She's afraid of the professor. And so when they say Mandingo cliche, it kind of sums up this, um, well, basically, Marcus is, through his story, honest but naive. And Vi is always deceptive, even to herself. When Vi talks to the professor, he's he's very direct. He says, like, yes, uh, you. I don't see any promise with you as a writer. Um, take off your clothes, stuff like that, where she's mm. like, so how long have you been living here? Uh, do you think Catherine's going to be a good writer? She just like never gets to her point. She just kind of like talks around what she actually feels. And so when she writes her story, her story does the same thing where it positions it as like, she's disgraced herself and everything. And Catherine aptly points out, that's not the story. That's not the truth of what happened, even in what you wrote. And what, so when she says, but it happened, and he says, it may have happened, but once you write the story, the story is what gets criticized. You can't just put your personal experience on the table with a piece of fiction and have them be equal. That's a very pointed way for Todd Salas to address the yeah. critical reaction <laughs> to his movies, which... Granted, he, he got a lot of praise for those first two films, right? Before Storytime. Oh, yeah. So it's only two, right? Well, the Dollhouse. Oh, yeah. Movies. Sundance won Grand Jury Prize. Right. Sundance I mean, like, he was a lot of Dollhouse. And then yeah. Happiness won uh, an award that I believe is the Fresky Prize, or Fresky? I, I don't know how to pronounce it, prize at the Cannes Film Festival. 
So it's like very, very, uh, a very large scale acknowledged as like a skillful filmmaker before this. I think like there is also a very prominent voice of yeah. <laughs> like criticism against these movies. Oh, because yeah. they're 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 <laughs> kind of horrible to watch sometimes. Yeah, I think they're really funny at like most of the times. Uh, but still, I mean, like like you said, Carrie, it's like tough to go back and be like, well, let's watch storytelling yeah. again. Me I really want to see this like again. really violent sex scene. Yeah, <laughs> once again. I thought he was making a different argument, and I'm not as familiar with his work, so I could be wrong. Well, I probably am wrong, and also all of this is so subjective, so... Yeah, just kind of the point. Yeah, kind of the point. But I thought that he may have been making the argument that when Selma Blair lets the professor fuck her, she is playing into letting the critics fuck her, which is usually not a great idea, because usually if you play to the critics, you don't necessarily make as good of work. But at the same time, she is gaining an experience, in this case, an experience of having sex with her professor, which she turns into something she can use in her class. Yeah, even he admits that her story is better. Right. And so I couldn't figure out if he was arguing that sometimes to gain a new perspective, you need to be fucked by the critics. Also, I was wondering if he's arguing that to not compromise or to not listen to the critics is to, in this segment, give yourself a literal handicap because Marcus has, you know, cerebral palsy. Yeah, and it's, I mean, even he's, after he gets criticized, <laughs> he's, he's, like, he's, like, very negative about it. Yeah. He's, like, but, and actually, I will say, you are right. I, yeah. I do think, <laughs> I do think you're right, yeah. and I didn't catch it in this part, but in the nonfiction thing, I caught a parallel to what you just described, and so I'm glad you caught that, because it makes it an overarching theme instead of just something I was guessing at, so... Mm-hmm. You are right. Uh, yeah. Um, Yay, me! <laughs> no. Um, well, and actually, that's part of the really tricky thing with a Todd Salon's movie, and a big reason why people don't like it, is that he does criticize Vi and her storytelling and criticizes everybody else right. at the same time. No one yeah. is fair. No one is fair. And so, yeah, the writer is bad, but the critics are bad also. Right. The way in which the critics are bad is that Marcus's story, which the professor, who is set up as, like, the ultimate voice of truth, like, the critic, the critics look up to, says it's bad, but everyone else, they, they get very easy compliments, like, I thought it was really brave, and, uh... Honest. The best, the best is, it's like Faulkner, but on the East Coast and disabled. <laughs> which completely, like... <laughs> yeah. Anyway. No, but yeah. It's like really just like stretching the possibilities of like what right. it is to get to somewhere where they can compliment. <laughs> and then, yeah. And then and Catherine, because Ka- Catherine's thing seems to be that she's honest, but feels obliged to like couch her honesty because she's the minority in the class. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when, Oh yeah, every time she says an honest opinion, opinion she I says, know? I'm sorry, what do I know? <laughs> yeah. know don't and, even listen to what I say. And so she never, she doesn't allow herself to dominate the conversation and doesn't argue with people. She contributes a very smart, informed opinion, 
but doesn't want to speak against the critical mainstream, essentially. And so she just, like, does what she can to be like, yeah, no, I love it, but, or I hate it, but don't listen to me. Even though this is a solid point, don't listen to me, which is something that I feel happens. Like, there are, especially with Todd Salons, who increasingly his films, as they get more personal, become less popular. But I remember, even with Welcome to the Dollhouse, uh, through... Basically, I'd say through Dark Horse, no matter how unpopular his movies got or how difficult they got, Roger Ebert always loved them. Mm -hmm. Pretty much always defended pretty much everyone except for Life During Wartime. So yeah, there are those people who do defend, but if they don't do it in a way that's like shouting it from the rooftops, it doesn't really help. Right, right, right. Faint praise is damning. Yeah, exactly. The other thing I thought that uh, the director was saying that is that it's really easy to be sensational. In what way? Well, Selma Blair's story is a retelling of her sexcapade with the professor. Yeah. And so it's fairly sensational. That doesn't necessarily make it a good story. Yeah. That's like, yeah, I think that's... What he's getting at, definitely, about the nature of fiction and narrative storytelling in general, is that it doesn't... The truth of the story, like, does not matter. Yeah. At all. All that matters is if it's convincing or not, right? Yeah. Well, at the same time, though, by critiquing the criticism in the first scene, it implicitly means that he's criticizing them in the second scene, too. Right. Which is when they complain about that sensationalism, because, yeah, he does say, yeah, it is too easy to sensationalize. But at the same time, sensationalism, not sensationalism, but shocking things have value. Yeah. And you can't just write off something for being shocking. Right. And so, yeah. That's true. The criticism is fair that, yeah, it's her story's bad because it's shocking, but it doesn't understand why it's shocking. It doesn't right. understand its own point. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, um, be, well, they, the... they, they say... Uh, uh, why do people have to write about such perverted characters? But what does that mean? Why on earth couldn't you tell a good story about a perverted character? Those things are not mutually exclusive. Um, it's mean-spirited. Is it mean-spirited because bad things happen to your characters? Is it mean-spirited in life when bad things happen to people? Yeah. Actually, uh, she, she's, yeah. she said that it's mean-spirited because it makes her feel bad. Exactly. Right. That's yeah. what she's really saying. It's And the one person says racist... Which is fair. That is right. a fair criticism. Yeah. But does she understand why it's racist? Or is it just racist because of the black man, white woman context? And right. is she just knee-jerk reaction? Because it's like that student's comprehension of why it would be racist is in fact racist in and of itself. Oh yeah, and right. it's immediately followed by that person who says, I felt deeply offended as right. a woman, which... <laughs> Because another woman did something, you're offended. Uh, And, uh, like, just because the person... And she even says, like, I felt so offended as a woman. I mean, is she stupid? Why does she do this? And so, because she can't relate to that situation, the person who does put themselves in that situation is is stupid. stupid, And because they're stupid, the story is not worth listening to. Right. And that's a bad criticism. I liked the ending of the first segment, what he says... You know, once you start writing, it all becomes fiction. Yeah. And how he points out that her story is better because it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And that first segment definitely had a beginning, a middle, and an end. Yeah. That's true, yeah. (laughs) Way to go. 
I'll use this to jump into the next one, but it seems with like what that kind of final point about once you start writing it all becomes fiction, it's kind of getting into this idea that is really, I feel is really expanded on in the next segment, which is that life is complex, but when you turn life into fiction, it requires a shaving off of certain elements or you can't know the full context of characters' lives. You can't know their psychology. Uh, you can't know where people have lived and like the cultures of that area. You basically know what you're told and what you can imply. And so fiction requires a reduction of complexity. Like, mm -hmm. uh, by telling the story, you have to tell it imperfectly. And I feel like that is exactly what nonfiction is about. Right. Nonfiction is getting into this idea that truth in nonfiction, especially, but in all forms of writing, storytelling, is shaped to meet the vision of the artist, or it's shaped to match the restrictions placed upon the artist. And as we go through nonfiction, we start with Toby Oxman, Paul Giamatti. He's going to make a documentary. He goes to the school and says, I'm going to do this documentary, meets a kid, says, if you want to do this, yeah, you can be my documentary. Goes to the family. The family says, well, it can't be about other kids. It has to be about him. And he wants this documentary made. So he says, fine, it's about him. His editor sees his footage and says, I don't like it. It should be like this. He changes his footage uh, according to the editor's critiques. And then Brady gets hurt. And the editor's like, there's your story. This is what you have to focus on. And so it becomes about that. And that's why at the end, when the whole family dies, uh, Scooby says, yeah, your film's a hit because he has that other thing. The thing that finally changes it is a big dramatic thing. And it's no longer a movie about the college application process for teenagers. It's a movie about a kid whose family is killed, uh, whose stupid family is killed, essentially. <laughs> Well, yeah, the best documentaries start out on one topic and end on another. Yeah, right, right. I feel like there's several good examples of documentaries that started with, like, another topic, you know, entirely, you know. Yeah, right, like... Yeah, uh, what was the one you were talking about where the guy, he's doing a documentary and then his girlfriend broke up with oh, him? Oh, Sherman's March. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a daughter from Da Nang where a woman is making a documentary about this other woman whose mother put her up for adoption from Da Nang, and so they travel together to go meet this woman's birth mother, and then when they get there, there's like this massive miscommunication on both sides about what everyone is there for, and it completely, it leads to the adopted woman's nervous breakdown, because Whoa. of like how bad it goes. There's wow. like, yeah, there's like a very, like, well, and, um, a long history of this in documentaries. And yeah. isn't capturing... The Freedmans Catching the Freedmans. I mean, you could argue several Errol Morris movies also fit this thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, Thin Blue Line. Well, Thin Blue Line well even My Kid Could Paint That. My Kid Could Paint That, yeah. <laughs> and, but those films, too, the difference between those and, say, like, what happens in nonfiction is that those films put the fact that the story is changing front and center. Yeah. They're like, this happened, and so we did it. The process is the movie. But what this is criticizing is the fact that you don't usually get to see that process. It starts before the movie begins filming, and the entire time there's compromises and other people's agendas, and those always get pushed on you, and you as a viewer don't know that. Right. And on top of that, it, the viewers kind of have more power than the filmmaker 
uh, in the movie, you see that he's trying to make the serious thing. He's, uh, like the very first time we see footage from the movie, there is like laughable stuff in there. Mm-hmm. But he's, he is presenting it. On, he's trying to present it honestly. He's trying to present it seriously and relatably. And then by the end, when he's showing American Scooby clips, everyone's just laughing. Right. It's turned into it's like a mockery. Yeah. yeah it's just a joke. Yeah. It's like his Grey Gardens. Yeah. Oh, Craig. Oh. <laughs> Maybe we could stop for a moment and just talk about the really amazing representation of suburbia. Yes. That is, <laughs> that yeah. dominates this part of the movie. Oh my God. Um, is Todd Salons Jewish? No, I don't think so. I mean, I yeah, I, I really, I never thought to look. Okay, <laughs> so I don't just know. curious. I read the Wikipedia page not too long ago and I'm do not believe he's I mean, okay. his, if you, based on his, like, early movies, just, like, feelings and fear, anxiety, and depression, he started his career really trying to do dark Woody Allen movies, uh-huh. um, where it's, like, exactly the same type of ensemble pieces, and he's a struggling writer in New York. There's a lot of neuroses. I mean, his, his first feature film is called Fear, Anxiety, and Depression. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, uh, I guess it, that doesn't prove either way whether or not he's Jewish, so I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> well, he brought case. up Woody Allen. Yeah, so. yeah right, right. You know. But there's just, like, this movie is just a great example of, I would say, it's satire. I mean, his movies yeah. are very satirical. Yes. Right? Yeah. But it's it's such a strange, strange way to do satire. Because I feel like satire, as it's usually done, leads to a kind of, feeling of superiority and condescension on the part of the audience. Yes. You know what I mean? Um, it's kind of like, oh, look at these fools. Even the best dance. satire. Right, right. right. Like, oh, Dr. Strangelove, you ultimately are like, look at these government idiots. Right, these And uh, being there is also does the same thing. Yeah. Like, look at the rich upper class of America. Right. Like, how stupid they are. Yeah. Right. And so, like, Todd Thomas does that with... <laughs> The absurd glasses yeah. that people all wear. Like, this, like, very pointed uh, production design. Oh, yeah. And that's the thing I didn't really appreciate until watching this this time, but the production design in his movies is incredible because it, the, the verisimilitude that it creates is... Oh, okay. Uh, in Brady's yeah, room... Yeah, break out that yeah, word. I saw it tattooed on someone's leg a couple days ago, and so <laughs> I've been, I've been meaning to reuse it again. Um, but it was a fake leg. <laughs> <laughs> the truth was in his <laughs> But um, in Brady's room, I just, like, I noticed this. In Brady's room, when Brady is in a coma, and John Goodman is sitting next to the bed, they show that like wide shot of the room and all the posters and he has that one that says study hard and it's like <laughs> a woman with a pencil in her mouth and you can see her panties and there's that other po- there's like a po- poster of a Lamborghini and then a poster of like a woman in a thong and her just ass is just like directly <laughs> at your face and there's just all this like glaringly weird color and right. all this stuff just like some weird kid's room would be like right. yeah like, teenage like, boy teenage boy yeah he, it's like I think Part of the satire is is a large part of it is just his production design, as yeah. you said. It kind of like surrounding his characters in these hyper cliched environments um, and playing it, playing that really broadly to the extent where they're like it's just like this weird nightmare yeah. of like what this trying to represent. Oh, and all the the inane pop music that soundtracks <laughs> this <laughs> movie <laughs> and every yeah. <laughs> it's just like really yeah. It's almost like. 
he yeah he really does make the normal world or what we see as just like stuff that we just take for granted in everyday life he makes it so alien that it's I comically love, oppressive i love yeah. that scene where paul giamatti's character is talking with the family to try and convince them to be in his documentary film and it shows their living room and they're sitting on that couch and behind them is like a family portrait where they're all wearing white shirts and jeans. Yeah, oh, and the it's so shirt. accurate. I, I have had those photos taken. Like my family <laughs> oh, yeah. has photos of us all wearing like wearing jeans and then red t-shirts. Yeah, that's totally white suburbia. Right. It's like this. It's the the, the satire is palpable. But at the same time, his satire. To me, it does not lead to the kind of easy condescension that the satire yeah. is. Yeah, because well, it's, there's still that sympathy. The satire is, like, kind of the broad aspects of satire, like the generalizations about yeah. the milieu, are combined with hyper-specificity. Yeah. So it's like these, it's this strange dichotomy that's going on between, like, broad portrayal and really, really specific yeah. experiences and instances. When I watch this movie and, and others of Talon Salas' movies, it's like, you laugh, but it's really painful yeah. at the same yeah. time. It's like, because like there's yourself. like this deep recognition. It's like, ugh. Yeah, you yeah. chuckle and then you swallow an eight ball, <laughs> basically. <laughs> basically. Uh, well, and in you saying that, it made me think of, in terms of like what he's satirizing, there are two really good examples of like the very specific things he's bringing up is Toby's movie is called, well, when it screens, it goes by the name American Scooby. And during the second edit of his movie, title. yeah, American Scooby is a great title, but after his... Yeah, I can't believe that we never figure out what Scooby's real name is. Yeah. Everyone calls him Scooby. I mean, that's, yeah, yeah, part of the satire. Yeah. That's <laughs> perfect. But, um, so when he does that, when he shows that second edit, or when he's watching the second edit of his movie with his editor, it's a very, very clearly an American Beauty parody. Parody, yeah. yeah. And um, she even says, like, afterwards, um, it has the appropriate gravity. Like, when he's trying to be honest and direct, she's like, this is glib, it's mocking them. But when he does the, Amer he even does the uh, piece like, of paper piece blowing of the wind, uh, and she's like, yes, <laughs> this is the appropriate gravity. But it's so, again, it's so facile and simplistic. American Beauty is a movie about the, about suburbia, right. very much in the way that storytelling is about suburbia, but American Beauty, it's very glossy and clean cut. It has pretensions towards complexity, but mm. it very much relies on cliche. And Todd Salons essentially is like, but you fuckers gave it best picture, best director, <laughs> best screenplay, right. best actor, and yet I have to make this movie for like, what, a million dollars? If that, if that yes. is. Because, yeah, and so you you, like, really, people, you don't want complexity. But also, and this is one where I really, I don't, I don't know what exactly to think of this, but he had, the cameraman, Toby's cameraman, is Mike Shank from American Movie, a documentary about a guy trying to make a movie, and basically a combination of just, like, him having trouble because he's a poor guy and he's like a goofy metalhead and stuff like that. And Mike Shank is like his stoner best friend who's basically his entire crew. And there's a lot of what you're saying before of you see the story changing as the movie's being made yeah. because there's a lot of stuff that's in play. And it's also because you see the difficulty of the artist's dilemma and stuff like that. But 
I, I, I wonder, I can't tell if the inclusion of Mike Shank in this movie is just like to tie it in to some of what American movies saying or to implicitly lump in his critiques with a critique of American movies treatment of Mike Shank. And I really wish I remembered the main guy's name, but it just mocking them, like just because there is a lot of stuff in American movie. That's very funny, but unintentionally. It, yeah. Would it, 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 is it funny in the way that American Scooby is where, because we see it out of context, we laugh or is it inherently funny? And I, I can't, I can't tell for sure if Todd Salons is making that critique, but it does feel like he is. I've not seen American movies. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's been a long time for me. Yeah, I, yeah, just, I haven't I, seen it either. That feels right. Yeah. You know, like I think I, there's like a kind of an endless loop of references going on, yeah. well, especially and, in the second part of the yeah. movie. <laughs> so one of the things that you said before we even watched this the first time was that this was the director's response to critics saying that he hates his characters. Yeah. And I think especially in the second half in nonfiction, he kind of explains that, no, I he doesn't hate his characters. It's just that bad things happen all the time. Yeah. Like, no matter who you are, bad things happen. And so if he writes a movie and he wants it to be even the slightest bit realistic something bad is going to have to happen to somebody because that's just the way life goes. That's fair. Yeah. And also just the fact that like he is, he does show it makes, okay. That clip of the woman saying, did you know that the youth in Bosnia during bombings are less stressed than teenagers applying to college, (laughs) (laughs) which is so, so crazy. But if you've ever seen an Errol Morris movie, people say shit like that all the time in Errol Morris movies (laughs) where they just say that like one crazy dumb thing that they don't realize how (laughs) far from reality it is Mm -hmm. and he just leaves it in and he doesn't edit it to make them look stupid he lets he lets them uh hang themselves with their own words yeah it's it's a cheesy movie the the very first part there's a lot to laugh at but at the same time is it inherently bad to show somebody say something stupid if they really did say it and right. you're, you're not making them look right. stupid, but and they're is not that stupid. Mean spirited, yeah. as this you know, in fiction, that girl would say. Yeah, maybe we could talk a bit about Paul Giamatti's character as kind of the very, very clear directorial stand-in. Oh yeah, he even yeah. like he's even like looks like him, like balding the same way, <laughs> tall, gangly. Oh yeah, and they make him such so a loser. So awkward. They like, make yeah, oh like my the god, biggest loser. Well, and just like well, they, and they start the segment by having <laughs> him call a woman he went to high school with and like ask her about her life, and there's no prompt for this. It's never referenced again. It <laughs> seems like maybe the only reason he's making this documentary about how hard it is for high school kids to apply for college is because of this phone call that he makes. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, because he, he does ask her, he's like, you're still in the industry, right? And she's like, no, just shuts him well, down. Well, I thought, I thought it was him trying, knowing that, hearing, just he, he was going to make the documentary. He heard that she had connections, was trying to, like, curry favor. That's, that's, that's how yeah. I read it. It could really play either way, yeah. yeah. Both ways fit in the Salon's worldview. So right. it's hard <laughs> to say. Like, where where characters are right? either despicable, uh, deluded, I really or thought it was more random. It seemed like maybe he found his yearbook, found the quote from her where she's like, you're going to be a great actor. 
And then he called her up and was like, hey, remember me, that hot actor in high school? Yeah. And then she blows him off. I, either way, it's pathetic. Yeah. <laughs> and even, even extending beyond that scene, when Toby meets Scooby in the bathroom and he does that thing where he like, he, and again, this is the segment that really has the great performances. We can get into that later. But when Paul Giamatti as Toby goes to like wash his hands and he jumps when the water comes out of the sink <laughs> and he goes to turn on the dryer and it won't dry and he like hits it and, and kind of like tries to drape himself like yeah. suavely <laughs> on top of it. It's so, he can't eat and even that like to, uh, Scooby doesn't give a shit about what he says until he says, he essentially implies HBO his connections MTV, yeah. and so he can't even impress a stoned teenager. Yeah. Like, that's how pathetic he is. <laughs> Seems like it's hard to impress teenagers though. Oh yeah, but but, like, he's just really trying to say buzzwords. He's really trying to be cool. And he's clearly not. They're just, the, he really, they really set him up to be just absolutely pathetic. They give him no hero moment. Even the end of the movie, he doesn't end redeemed. He ends, like, running up to the scene of, like, people dying and being with the camera and being like, oh, I'm so, so sorry. Like, fake cry. Definitely fake <laughs> cry, yeah. <laughs> well, so his character and his intentions or at least like his artistic intentions for the movie evolve yeah like as as this documentary is being made like from begin, like at the beginning it seems like well it's i guess it's unclear even at the beginning why he's trying to make this movie yeah um you know if based on that phone call if like he just made something up on the spot to yeah. talk to this old high school acquaintance or not but it seems like he, he's trying He's, he begins with the most pretentious of intentions, basically, <laughs> yeah. to really document the soul of suburban America, like really get to the heart of it. Initially, that seems to be his push. Well, and it's not about money. Right. It's yeah. not about money at all. It's like, it's just him pursuing the odds, like unfettered, unfettered by commercial concerns or whatnot. Yeah. That's actually a really good point because when he's showing American Scooby in the end, it's because he says to the editor, I have to show it to people so people can tell me what the movie will right. be. Right. Yeah, he's or like, I want to know if they'll like it. As un, the, pretty much the opposite of like, I have this lofty aim and I'm right. doing this no, for my reason. He has no fucking idea yeah. what he's making, basically. Um, so like, it goes from that to kind of him scrambling and like trying to find a direction for this movie to him at like his last his set the second session he has with his editor kind of realizing how funny the movie is yeah him going from like i really want to like present these people with dignity to that's boring let's just lampoon this family because they're absurd yeah right yeah very uh well i really i really liked the line that his editor says uh, it's like a very simple line, but she just says, well, what's an audience going to tell you? And I think that that's a really poignant question to ask an actual film audience. And But it's also interesting, too, just in terms of who is having the conversation, that it's an editor telling us essentially what we'll say is a storyteller. And an editor, uh, their side of storytelling or filmmaking is they do the job they because can. that's that's what they have to do. They yeah, have to they make it look frame s- the story. It's up to them. They g- are given the pieces and they build it with the pieces and instructions given. Yeah. It's like a person who gets a Lego set and uh, has the instructions but assembles it in a way that makes it a little better. They're not there. There's a, a set pattern and there is improvisation and a good 
editor makes a lot of difference, but they aren't filming new scenes. Right. They, and so... They have to work with what they have. And, and they don't show it to an audience. The audience is like, this is bad. And they're like, oh, I'll, I'll re-edit it. Uh, based, uh, like, it doesn't happen like that. Right. Um, right. If it's, but with this, with Paul Giamatti, an audience could tell him something. And, and admittedly, it's, it's telling him, it's for the context of he doesn't know what he's doing. But yeah, it's very easy for her to dismiss the idea of feedback, even though she's giving him feedback, <laughs> because her job is totally different. Well, right. and that goes back to the first segment about who gets to be the critic. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Ty comes all full yeah. circle. Well, this kind of ties into that, but I want to cite like one, uh, like one specific conversation and kind of talk about it briefly. I want to talk about the Holocaust survivor conversation <laughs> in this section because right. it's 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 really great. It doesn't necessarily maybe through talking about it tying to the bigger can, picture, yeah, but um, some stuff out. so during a typical standoffish uh, dinner with the, the whole family, <laughs> the, the silent antagonist <laughs> yeah, dinner, John Goodman just angrily staring daggers at his son. Um, <laughs> one of the other sons, Brady, says, uh, "We're studying in the Holocaust. We're studying the Holocaust in class," and John Goodman is like. Oh, immediately oh, yeah? corrects <laughs> like yeah. really uh and so they, they're talking about um he asks he has to write a paper on a holocaust survivor and do we know a holocaust survivor and the mom says well technically uh, your your grandmother well uh your seda is a um survivor because she got out before it happened and essentially saying like so yeah we're we're all survivors because of this and when he points out the when Scooby, Scooby points, out. Uh, points out the ridiculousness of it by saying ultimately like well then if by then we're all survivors yeah if we're if we're all survivors and if by Hitler making you leave the family exists then also doesn't imply that if it weren't for Hitler I'd never be born and I mean immediately too John Goodman shuts it out kicks him out of dinner he has to leave. Uh, discussion is over, but what I, I just what do you think? What do you guys think he is trying to get at by raising that idea? Because it starts off normal, like I guess you could see it's a defendable position that yeah, she wasn't actually there, she didn't live through it, but she was in the country and she survived. But it, as the further it gets talked about, the more absurd it gets until it's been reduced to total absurdity. But what do you think he's trying to get at, other than just like the naivety of the family? If anything else. You know, I was thinking, like, it's it's almost like him just critiquing, I guess, like, reducing the Holocaust to kitsch, which is kind of like what the mom is doing, almost. Yeah. It's like, it's the Holocaust as this, like, unassailable, horrible thing, and Hitler is this demon, and by extension, all the, like, the, the repercussions of his acts kind of reach out and could, could you know go endlessly basically okay, yeah it's so, like basically like sanctifying all the repercussions of hitler's actions like almost like it gives them no meaning like to say that that family is just, like our survivors is like idiotic yeah right it's like i i just thought of it as a character development scene for the mother well and yeah because she does i do like because otherwise <laughs> i like yeah i like what you're you're saying but i I mean, otherwise, the mother's only scene where she has any development is when she's making those calls to get people. Calls. Yeah, the fundraising calls That's to get really people to yeah. donate to the hospital. Well, it's to Israel. 
Because yeah. she said, Israel oh. needs your money. And I, you notice, too, during that scene, they start filming her, but then once the maid starts cleaning, they film that. Because yeah. the maid is actually, like, working. She's, like, she's out of breath. She's, like, reaching. She's doing something, whereas the other woman's just, like, sitting on the phone. A rich woman sitting on the phone collecting more money. Yeah. For people who have money, essentially. It's just, like, a meaningless thing. But that's what she does all day. And again, I'm going to, I'm going to piggyback off that into something else, but she, yeah, she's very clearly set up as this like woman who has no, she's there, but she doesn't actually influence the kids in any way. Mm -hmm. She doesn't seem to reprimand them. Like when Scooby says the thing about Hitler, she looks shocked and looks at John Goodman and John Goodman responds. She doesn't actually respond. And John Goodman is kind of set up as this like authoritarian figure. Mm -hmm. Like he represents this kind of being where you do as I say. Scooby has to behave according to his rules. And if Scooby wants something slightly different, there's no trying to get through to him. There's no, I understand, but you, it'll be better this way. It's just, you're doing it because I told you to do it. There's no other reason you need to know. And I will threaten you and I will punish you to make sure you do what I tell you right, to do, yeah. which is authoritarianism. Now, Scooby, I mean, that's really reductive, but still, like, um, in terms of this movie, it is. Right, right. Um, so, okay, Scooby is the first son in this, and he's just a, like a burnout. He's, like, detached from everything. He already, like, doesn't care. He has no motivation to, like, be involved with his family. He's kind of detached from the rest of the world. Famous. Yeah, he wants to be famous, but because <laughs> no one clearly cares about what he thinks, no one's ever tried to teach him about how to be famous, and so he just doesn't understand. He's just like, I want to be famous, I will be famous, and that's it. Mm. Uh, the middle son is dumb, uh, but he seems like well-intentioned, right. if not necessarily a good person. Like He tells his brother not to be openly gay, at high school, but does it in a sweet way. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, like really, like, it's like, please, yeah. I like, it's okay if you're gay, but just don't drag me down with you, <laughs> which is like probably like one of the sweeter things that's ever happened in time. <laughs> <laughs> that's as sweet as it gets. But then the well, youngest, but he gets his, he gets his. Yeah. But Mikey. Mikey, he is the perfect child. He basically is very, um, he's the manipulative one. But yeah, but he's the manipulative one. And that's, uh, but he, so he, when they're at the table It definitely scenes, follows the, uh, child archetypes. Like, oldest child, middle child, youngest child. Oh, yeah. Mm. But specifically in the way in which it plays out, you mean, whenever we see Mikey with the table, he's always like, Mom, I did great on my tests. And his, his hair is perfectly slicked and he's well-dressed. And mm. even when he's, like, condescendingly talking to Consuela, he is he enunciates and he's very polite in, like, a, uh, like a, a way that doesn't matter when you're being that condescending, but he still does it. Right. Um, and then, but then when that moment happens where he hypnotizes his dad, what does he do? He tells his dad how right. things are going to be. He basically says, this is how I want it. This is what I want. You will not care about your other children. You will care about me. Mm -hmm. He has been raised to be the authoritarian. And because he knows the system mm -hmm. and he works inside the system, he's more destructive because... Whereas John Goodman is just like, yeah, this is what I have to do to raise my kids. Well, this... he's the reason they all die. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, exactly. Right. Right. But yeah. he, he has to die. The movie actually pretty much sets up a point where you... 
you kind of want this kid to die yeah. because he's yeah. so you can in, in that moment you can he's see he's almost like the little brother in Teen Witch. I don't know if you guys I kind of remember Witch, yeah. but oh that little brother he's so me. like I think he gets turned into an animal at some point in the yeah. movie and when he does you're like yes I just hate you so much I'm so glad you're an animal and that's how I felt about Mikey yeah, yeah but he just like the way in which he's been raised has so perfectly worked on him that he can control the system yeah it's you kind of see that in the way in which like to make a totally absurd parallel <laughs> uh kim jong-un is that the son yeah okay uh kim jong-un uh once he took over the country of north korea from his father kim jong-il uh you can see that he <laughs> he worked in the system and even though he was like the younger child and they're like well no he he was a good kid and he studied abroad and everything he was raised to believe in things are a certain way and when he took over he did he like he started doing more aggressive displays than his father did he um he uh, kills off he's killed off more people more he's relatives. his relatives and things like that he really yeah. doesn't care and the movie kind of makes that parallel just like a family and just the way in which like yeah you can the the way you raise people has like a damaging effect that was a, a rhetorical tour de force yeah, sorry oh. i like really went there i'm sorry i like i've seen this movie so many times i like really thought a lot about the it the connections are firing the synapses are burning um i mean let's 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 you know, it should be noted that the little kid has the hitler haircut yes basically oh yeah yeah he really i think does. the apparel the the parallel is very, very pointed. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think you're completely on course. All right. <laughs> well, and um, well, and he kind of becomes a dictator because he tells his dad right, exactly yeah, right, what right, right. he doesn't give his dad a choice because he hypnotizes his dad into doing whatever he, says, he wants. Yes, I will. Do I think he even say. says, "You will do whatever I ask you to do." Yeah. Right. To yeah. his dad right. when his dad's hypnotized. <laughs> Well, I, I want to get into just the overall stuff because there's a couple really big things I've been saying. Wait, I have, a, I have a totally nonsensical question. Okay. Do you think that John Goodman took this part because in Roseanne he was such a good father? <laughs> he needed to balance out his <laughs> He was like, I don't want to get typecast. <laughs> I can so. be a shitty dad too. Honestly, I never have any idea why anybody is in a Todd Salon <laughs> In Dark Horse, Christopher Walken is one of the leads in it. It's like, how did they get Christopher Walken in this movie? <laughs> well, yeah, and Selma Blair's in it too, right? Oh, yeah. Blair, and, yeah, she plays Valley. Um, well, and Happiness, like, I mean, it's granted it's early Philip Seymour Hoffman performance, but it has uh, um, Philip oh, Seymour Hoffman. And Jared and, Harris, right? Jared Harris, um, Lara, Lara Flynn Boyle, yeah, um... Dylan Baker. Dylan, Dylan Baker. Baker like, ben yeah. Gazzara. Um, yeah, just like he always gets people really good. And this yeah. new movie, Wiener Dog, when that comes out, it's going to have Greta Gerwig, Julie Delpy, Danny DeVito, Tracy it's Letts. Uh, it's so, so weird. Crazy. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, but Because um, it's not like, I can't imagine these people are getting paid anymore. Oh, no. Absolutely. That's awesome when he's making nothing. Palindrome's well, yeah, he paid for out of pocket. Right, yeah, <laughs> I read that he basically spent all of his his own money on palindromes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because nobody would pay for it. It, it looks it looks like it cost his money. It does <laughs> not look like a studio paid for it. But before we get into the overall stuff, I, the, actually, it's good that you brought that up just because I want to talk about the performances really quick in this segment. Like, who is really good? Everybody's, Everybody's basically great. really yeah, good. I want to point out, Xander Berkeley has like a one scene, probably less than a, a minute of screen time cameo. Who's Xander Berkeley? Xander Berkeley... Uh, the most famous thing I can think of him is 
in Air Force One, he's the president's guy that it betrays him. That tries to kill is the president. The, is he the counselor in, in this movie? Yeah, he's the guy that's okay, counselor okay. in this. Oh. But do you remember the guy in Air Force One who goes down with the yeah, plane? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Xander Berkeley, um, during his little scene, which I had a guidance counselor exactly like this guy. He <laughs> nails that type. But when after that moment when um, Scooby says to him, I hate reading... His left eye twitches before he says his line of dialogue. He like has that look of anger, and he actually somehow gets a twitch before he does it. It's incredible. Like like that type of stuff is right, what's the twitch on like, command. <laughs> I, like, I just can't believe like how good that is for less than a minute of right, screen time. They right. put that much effort into nailing that. Well, part. and that that scene where Scooby is talking to Paul Giamatti's character and. Scooby's like, hey, yeah, dude, tell me when you're going to be screening the movie. I want to see it. And you can see how uncomfortable Paul Giamatti is because it's so clear that he is going to screen the movie, like but he doesn't want to tell Scooby. Right, he doesn't want to show the movie. But he, play- oh, he plays it so well. well he, he looks at the ground. Yep. Okay, Scooby. You know, yeah, he never makes eye contact, make eye contact with Scooby. Yeah, I loved that. And then John Goodman's incredible. John Goodman is... Yeah. Well, and the wife's great. The woman Julie from, Haggerty. Yeah, the yeah, woman from yeah. Airplane. Right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's her. Um, God, she's great. John Goodman is a national treasure. Um, I haven't yet to see a bad John Goodman performance. No. I think he's just, he's just like an amazing... Although actor. I haven't revisited the Flintstones. <laughs> okay, yeah, you see let me movie? retract. <laughs> All right. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> John Goodman's been in bad movies. Don't he's... see the biopic about Babe, Babe, it's called, right? <laughs> Don't see the Flintstones live action movie. He's been in bad movies, but that doesn't mean that he was bad in them. It's never his fault. Yeah, let's see. Yeah, okay. So he's never just been, he's never just like bombed apart. Yeah. You know? He makes flight better. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Every yeah. scene he's in flight is yeah. good because of he's him. So he should be good in all flight. of Robert Zemeckis' movies. Oh. Uh, automatically. Man, who would he be in the one? The Wire is the, the walk. Oh, the walk, yeah. For <laughs> Levitt doing that terrible dear French everyone. accent. We should really cover that movie when it comes yeah, out. Yeah, dear <laughs> everyone, please don't see that. We should movie. maybe do a Robertson Beckus movie. Oh, yeah. Oh. He's like a fascinating, like, really frustrating character. He's kind of like Barry Levinson in that he just <laughs> keeps getting to make movies, but not, I mean, he's made like a you good movies? Well, you made Back to the Future and yeah, Back to yeah. the Future oh, yeah. Rabbit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Back to the Future is great and Who Framed Roger Rabbit is great, but you know what? There have been some really bad <laughs> movies. It's been a while since you made a really great movie. Yeah. And like, actually, no. In a previous podcast, I've talked about the, the three bad types of movies. <laughs> yes, right? you did. Let me add one, and that is like the middling, middle-brow, Oscar-bait movie. Yeah. That is like that. Those kinds of movies deserve to be a in a bad type of hell. It yeah. is a special type of hell. It's like the King's Speech. Ugh. Fucking shit like that. It's yes. just Kurt terrible. Benjamin Button. Oh, God. Yeah. 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 Oh, and all the biopics. Uh, every biopic ever Theory made. Of except for except for uh, the Todd Haynes, I'm not there. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's actually pretty interesting. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Because that's a very avant-garde approach to the biopic and Well, I talk about great performances. Yeah. I mean, the type of movie that thinks to have Kate Blanchett play Bob Dylan is just like a movie that's definitely it's inspired. Think, yeah, that's it's inspired. really smart. Yeah. And and you want to see the movie just because even if the whole movie was generic, you'd watch that movie just to see 
what that performance and would be like. I will go ahead and plug the soundtrack for that movie because it is fabulous. It's two <laughs> discs if you get it on CD. <laughs> and it's all covers of Bob Dylan songs by great artists. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're it's gonna, wonderful. You're going to be on my segues tonight because I'm going to use that segue in the soundtrack for this movie. Bell and Sebastian. I have a segue queen. <laughs> yeah, we should talk about that. <laughs> segue queen. Bell and Sebastian, which is... It's, I mean, Bell and Sebastian's great. I like Bell and Sebastian a lot. I I wasn't I couldn't get behind it. Yeah, in this well, movie. No, a lot it of, didn't work. A lot of their score didn't actually make it into the movie. It's like a few songs. It's only a few songs, yeah. and I think the reason for that is because Todd Salons has good taste. He was like, it'd be cool to collaborate with them. They write songs that are kind of like Todd Salons movies at times, and so you know what? They're yeah. you know what? Um, I just thought of this. A lot of those little quick segues where they show suburbia or oh, um, little, like the outside of the college yeah, where it's like do, 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 that do, sitcom do. like break yes. music. You know yeah. what music that reminds me of is the melody from I Heart Huckabee's the da da da. Oh, it makes that's me think that's an app comparison. Both both yes. it makes me think of like Full House. Right? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, of. it's like a combination of those two. I, I mean. I Heart Huckabees does it well. They're both parodies of like this like meaningless like five second songs that pepper you know commercials. Yeah, I think the whole point of those musical cues in storytelling are supposed to be funny. Yeah, it's supposed to highlight the inanity of everything and how how glossy and sitcommy life is. Like, people like to pretend like this. But anyway, with Bell and Sebastian, I think the problem he must have realized, because I, I feel like I can't help but notice it, is that as great as... I love Bell and Sebastian, but they sound a hair too close to the inane pop music that already litters the movie. Uh. And so when you hear, like, fun, 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 and then it cuts that one song where Scooby's driving around, mm. and it's, like, really upbeat, and... It's like it almost for a second. You have to. I had to remind myself that that is that written for. Yeah, it's written right. for the movie. Right. It's not just like a dumb piece of music. And, and so, yeah, I think there's no way that uh, like a lyric heavy score could ever work for a Todd Salon's movie no. because you have to pay attention to so much dialogue already yeah. and so many like individual points that are just like shooting off at all times. That yeah, you really it was a it was a bad move and. Uh, that's definitely part of the reason why this movie is so lumpy is because that and a chunk of the movie inherently well, the, not working. Well, yeah, and the movie doesn't look great. No, it's and it's shot by the cinematographer uh, Frederick da- Elms. David Lynch. Yeah, for David Lynch. I believe there's yeah. a shot in um, fiction where Marcus and V are arguing and it cuts to a shot that it took me forever to notice this, but it's a shot of the professor walking with Catherine Mm. and they're entirely in shadow and the shot only lasts for like three seconds. So probably took me like nine viewings to even realize that they were looking at a a character that's in the movie. I thought it was just like a weird cutaway (laughs) and because they don't do anything to like emphasize what we're supposed to be looking at or, and most of the time I feel like it actually does, it hits its sitcom look and it's like glossiness, right? But it is sloppy on that front for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, the really big thing that I wanted to talk about is, I, and I didn't notice this until I watched it this time, but one of the criticisms of Welcome to the Dollhouse and Happiness, and I'm surprised this was a criticism in the 90s, because it's very much of, a, of the now thing, is that he doesn't really deal with minority characters at all. 
Mm-hmm. He like really Welcome to Dollhouse is very much white suburban existence, and Happiness is like That's not is like white yeah. upper middle class existence. Yeah, it's still suburban. Yeah. Yeah, and but so in this movie, in both fiction and nonfiction, we are given minority characters who essentially exist to reflect how shitty all of the white people around them are. <laughs> yeah. Um, the professor in the first segment, regardless of what you think of his sexual proclivities or him as a critic, he is... All, He's in an authority he, position. He never really agrees with his students. His students say things and he's like, uh, he, he says Catherine's right when Catherine's the only one who will criticize Marcus's story, mm-hmm. implying that all of you are wrong. All of your stupid uh, nice niceties are wrong. They're not appropriate for the story. Right. And then later when they're doing their knee-jerk reactions, he doesn't have a knee-jerk reaction. He has the smart literary critique. Mm-hmm. And he's very honest and direct. And he is, he regardless of anything else that they said about the character, he is the most intellectual of all the characters in that segment. He's the most intellectual, and then he's also like... Not developed. Oh no, he's not. No, he, but he, and it's all, it's it's only well, twenty five like, minutes. They, segment, right? They drop that he's like a Pulitzer Prize winner. And... Yeah, but they still like they. That's his his minority character isn't just like a. It's not one person in the class or something like that. It's the professor and he's the person saying like the people who are complaining about racism and stuff. You have no idea what you're talking about. Like and and, and it's more explicit in. Nonfiction, Consuela, like, think of Consuela's life. Think of how miserable she looks. Think about every time we hear her talk, how much more interesting oh, her she's life always is. She's sweating. She's always sweating. She's miserable. She has this huge family. Yeah. She has immigrated and is working her ass off, presumably for money for her family or right. her children. Her brother has just been executed, and this is all pushed off grandson, the side. Grandson. Grandson. And, um, all of this is considered, like, she tells the story about, like, my grandson just got executed, he was in jail for rape and murder, and the kid's like, will you clean up my juice? <laughs> like, really, like, I don't give a shit about this. And, uh, yeah, it really, I mean, and like, granted, she's not super developed as her own character either, but she's clearly a less disgusting human being in those moments as a maid than the people who are just, like, condescending, like, especially Mikey, very condescendingly being like, like, you didn't go to high school. That's... Consuelo. Oh, man, you should have gone to high school. Like, you well, should you're not smi- actually working. You should smile more. Yeah, like, doing all this stuff. Like, yeah. and well, and he... The reason that he and the parents end up dying at the end is because he tells his dad, he hypnotizes his dad to fire Consuela. Yeah. And Consuela is the one that murders them all. Yeah. <laughs> she turns on the gas and they die from gas poisoning? Asphyxiation, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah that's what I thought. Yeah. I wasn't sure if maybe, like, the house kind Yeah, of I always assumed the house exploded. <laughs> I just, what? I, like, in my mind, that's just what made sense, because they never show the house again. Right. And and they have that, like, 20-second-long shot of gas filling the house. Yeah. Which seems to just emphasize something, like, really horrible is gonna happen. Yeah. But, um... Even though, like, they're not perfect characters, the Professor and Consuela are clearly supposed to be commenting on white privilege and condescending attitudes that 
privilege white people have towards minorities. It's really explicit in nonfiction, and in fiction it's just sort of implied, but it's there. It's um, not as much of like a meta critique as much as just like, yeah. well, while I'm doing everything else and you, you complain about this, so I will complain about you complaining about this. <laughs> uh, that's what it seems to be. Yeah, I, but, yeah, I would agree with that. I, I still think just, uh, I think those characters are kind of... The fact that they're like so ancillary, to the yeah, plot, yeah they're, it's like kind of like their development not great, not a great way to address this criticism, Todd Solomon. Yeah, their development is entirely through dialogue of white characters. But at the same time, okay, I will play devil's advocate here and be like, what would their movie be if they were the main characters? Like, um, can you imagine make a Todd Solon's movie where all of the characters are minorities and they behave the way that characters behave in a Todd Solon's movie? As much as I would like yeah, to see no, that movie. I don't Could think, that movie get made? I don't think that he is... Could you make happiness where the pedophile is black? I mean, I, mean I think you could. I mean, <laughs> yeah. like, well, maybe let, let, let's yeah. specify. <laughs> could you make that movie? Absolutely. You, you make should that. make that you movie. You should make that yeah. movie. That'd be a great movie to make. I mean, it would never get funded, obviously. Yeah. Right? It would. It, that's just kind of... Yeah, and I do, I do t- absolutely agree. I'm not saying this is the high mark of depictions of minority characters or anything. Yeah. I'm just saying, in terms of how he already doesn't super develop his characters. Well, I think, I think he, as a director, plays into his strengths when he writes, and he knows white the banalities of white upper middle class exactly so for him, writing minority experiences doesn't come as you know naturally, or or he doesn't. Maybe he's not comfortable with with telling their stories because he doesn't know their stories. Yeah, and so and he doesn't as as uh, as intimately. And so yeah, his his depictions of their stories aren't intimate. They're more like the professor is a Pulitzer Prize winner. He wrote a story called he wrote a, a novel called A Sunday Lynching. He's severe, not in terms of his. He's mean, but just in terms of his like Bearing. austerity yeah. and the way in which he is like always honest and as concisely as possible and as directly as possible. Very taciturn. Yeah, he does not flinch. <laughs> and so yeah, it's not it's not a developed character. We don't really get we don't know him, but he is a presence. He's a clear cut presence. And uh, Consuela, you don't know her as a person, but you hear the story in terms of like she is a person who dealt with this and implicitly. The, how, how much we see her cleaning, she's suffering, she's sweating. He's not developing her as a person, but he is trying to do his part to be like, yeah, this sucks. Being a maid, especially being a maid for people as oblivious as this and being no thanks for it, being told that you're not working, that sucks. Like right. when we were watching it on Sunday, hearing Emily like gasp <laughs> during all that, that conversation, it's like, yeah, you are. You're supposed to be horrified. But that's how people talk to minorities all the time, still. 13 or 14 years after this movie, we're still, as a country, still trying to, like, do baby steps to get people to not talk like this. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it's uh, yeah, the criticism of Todd Salon's the fact that, like, you, you don't have any, you know, people of color in your movies is, is stupid. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's a dumb criticism, right? Let's, I mean, but this, like, this reaction to it, while... It works within the movie. It's just not ideal, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, I'll agree with that. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, maybe we could uh, just kind of overall. Let's maybe let. Can we talk really briefly about the missing segment? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So in the original pitch, and presume it sounds like they filmed it and everything, and it just got cut and abandoned. 
uh, there was a third segment of the movie called Autobiography in which James Vanderbeek plays a closeted football player. And as we mentioned before, there's some sort of brown bunny-esque sex scene that is alluded to being in it, but this segment was cut and it's been hinted that it was cut because it was too graphic. They would have basically mm. given it an X rating if it, it, it contained it, yeah. Or um, that there was pressure for people who didn't want James Vanderbeek depicted that way, even though James Vanderbeek wanted to be in the movie. He mm. wouldn't have done it otherwise. Uh, but there's been no. Was Dawson's Creek on at the time that so. this movie? I think came it had out? just finished, or it was like wrapping up because. Okay. Like, uh, Rules of Attraction, which is also another, like, very dark... James um, Vanderbeek. Uh, yeah, dark James Vanderbeek movie. Vehicle. A James yeah. Vanderbeek vehicle. Which, yeah, it basically, like, it was during an era when he was trying to be like, I'm not the hunk from Dawson's Creek. I'm a crazy guy. I'll do crazy movies. <laughs> he's and, great. Yeah, he's... And I, I love Rules of Attraction. I wouldn't say it's a great movie, but I love it. I really <laughs> liked it, yeah. too. Uh, and uh, I really would have... I would love to see his segment in this. I mean, I love... I would be just curious because I'm a completionist... And I like Todd Salons anyway, but I, I I don't know. I really would like to see. Maybe someday Paolo Criterion will release this movie Hopefully. and they'll put it as a special feature just for you. It, it's it's, it's yeah. very strange that a movie that's been made in the last 15 years does not have, like, that this footage hasn't surfaced. Yeah, we don't even right? know. There's no description you can find online. There's nothing that says it was offensive. There's no reason to bury it. And we know what happens in The Day the Clown Cried, that Jerry Lewis Nazi movie that there's only one copy of and it's in a vault. But that leaked out. Mm. But Todd Salons can't get this... I don't know. It seems just so innocuous. It does. I don't understand what it could be about that it would be needing this much like burial. And it, But at the same time, I also really am curious as to what it is because I wonder how or if it completes storytelling. And, and, yeah. It has I mean, to, right? And the, the movie really... Do you think it could make the movie less lumpy? Yeah, yeah. I, I think so. Because the, the movie is like, it seems like it's seen a second time now. It's funneling towards some kind, like, I mean, I, a way out of the problems of, like, fiction and what, like, storytellers need to wrestle with. I feel like a way out is through self-representation. Yeah. Like power, like, <laughs> just telling your own story. Yeah. Um, that do can you... be redemptive and whatnot. Where do you think it would have been in the movie? Do you think it would have been the first? That would have been the end. The end? Yeah. A fiction, the nonfiction, then the autobiography. Like, kind of... Because I I do really like the note that nonfiction ends on. But it ends like... A, it's just so incomplete. That note that it ends on is yeah. just like... That's fair. <laughs> to me, it feels like it's like there's something missing. Yeah, and I wonder if because fiction is about short story writing and the different varieties of short stories and the different ways it could be bad or things it could be about, and the uh, second one's about documentary filmmaking. And so I wonder if, to some extent, um, because he's not just going to have another short story section, and if he's a closet football player, he's not going to write a novel. He's not going to write. Uh, TV screenplay. Do you think it's autobiography in terms of like the story y your of your life that you, you present, especially if he's closeted? Mm -hmm. That implies that there's like a public image, and actually that kind of links into the whole football thing. 
from nonfiction when Brady asks Scooby not to be openly gay mm. because mm. he's he has he's in the football team and he says he has a social reputation yeah. to keep up. So if it's setting up something where there is like a story of your life that you present to people, regardless of whether or not it's true, it's the version of your life that you pare down to present to other right. people. That you can control. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's that's what it's based on the context. It seems like something like that, and that would probably build pretty naturally mm. to uh, from what the other two things are saying. But uh, who knows? It, it could have just been like a colossal fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe there's some kind of legal action against the footage being released or something. Maybe James Vanderbeek got some lawyers and like. Just prevented this stuff from like lawyered up. up. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know. It's yeah, bad. I don't know. Maybe the director just felt like it didn't really fit with the message of the other two parts after he filmed it. Yeah, maybe he, he hasn't really said anything about it. No, this is the movie he's talked about the least. Like palindromes comes with a booklet of him talking about palindromes, so you have like there's tons of context. And Happiness and Welcome to the Dollhouse are acclaimed works, so he got a lot of interviews about it. But storytelling falls in a, a like a pit in his career where it's not an offensive enough movie to get a bunch of like think pieces about it and it's so dense that there's not like one thing that you can be like this movie's about this and it wasn't even popular as his it was seen like as kind of like a like lesser a, work a lesser work that followed his greatest work right. and so it just it's in the period of his career where it was it clearly didn't work out the way he wanted to and so he probably doesn't want to talk about it for that reason and then no one saw it and there's no lasting cultural legacy it leaves behind it doesn't necessarily do anything that no other movie has done it it does it what it does it does much smarter than most other movies do but it's still kind of approaching familiar territory mm. and so yeah there's just like a lot of reasons why why we had such a hard time finding trivia and stuff about it yeah it's just like yeah nope <laughs> this movie yeah. happened and let's just move on i guess yeah i didn't find any trivia about the movie yeah. i mostly found trivia about todd salons which uh speaking of trivia yeah. about todd salons i found out that he is in married to the mob yeah I, I, yeah, yeah. He is credited as the zany reporter. <laughs> Did you see another movie that he happens to be in? He's you... in As Good As It yes. Gets. <laughs> and I could Man not. On bus. Man I on could bus. not figure out why he was in that one. Yeah, well, I, why is he in Married to the Mom? Well, in Married to the Mom. <laughs> why is he in anything? Well, in Married to the Mom, I, I get it because it's the 80s and it was like before he was really directing a lot of movies. Yeah, he, he had, had like directed one movie. One, I think one movie by that Here's time. That yeah, yeah, yeah. And I imagine Jonathan Demme was like, "Hey, you want to be in my movie? Cool." Yeah, Jonathan Demme is like a party guy. He's probably just like, "Hey, whatever. If you want to be in my movie, Jonathan Demme, the party guy. Cool man. Don't want You like music? I like music. Just act natural, okay? Roll. Let's talk about talking heads. Um. Yeah, I, th I thought that was pretty great, since Married to the Mob is awesome. Yeah, well, when we do Married to the Mob for this podcast, we'll, I'll point him out. <laughs> right. say, he, like, fits in perfectly with the movie. It does not, he even, like, he, there's nothing depressing about it. There's no rain cloud over his scene. <laughs> I love Married to the Mob. He's in the scene, spoiler alert for Married to the Mob, for anybody. He's in the scene where Dan, not Dan Hedaya, but... 
Um, Oliver Platt? No, um, the guy who I always confuse with Dan Hedaya, Dean Stockwell. When Dean Stockwell... I, what? Yeah, I always confuse those two. They don't look anything alike. Oh, no. They're just like... <laughs> they're like big... They have black eyebrows and they're heavies from the 80s. That's basically... That's it. But so after Dean Stockwell gets arrested at the end of the movie and they're like... Set, they're, they're taking him away. He's getting interviewed. Remember, he gets taken to the bathroom and Mercedes rolls waiting in there and she like goes to like cut his dick off and he wakes up. When he's going to the bathroom and all those people are asking questions, one of them is Todd Slots. Oh, That's right. Okay. Weird. Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe we could end yeah, closing wrap teaching up. moments. Uh, so, uh, Bye. Okay, so, <laughs> Carrie, do you have a teachable, something that you would teach from this movie and what would it be? I had to go first? Um, I guess it is my turn to go first. <laughs> um, You're burned to bear. I honestly uh, hadn't formulated a, a teachable moment. I guess I don't really have one because I don't know his work as uh, intricately as you guys do. I've, this is the second Todd Salons movie I've seen ever. Mm. Uh, first being Welcome to the Dollhouse, which... I think is a lot lighter. Yeah. Well, like I said, Welcome to the Dollhouse and is the lightest. Storytelling is the second lightest. Yeah. So <laughs> so just think of that. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I guess I need to teach myself about Todd's lives. Well, just like separate from him. <laughs> is that a pun? Maybe. I love puns. You said it in like a, this is a pun. (laughs) I'm really good at pun inflection. (laughs) You got Um, me. (laughs) But just like as a movie in general, separate from like, yeah, I mean, I guess uh, I, I really like this movie because it's like I've said at the very beginning, it's very smart. It's very self-aware. And I really appreciate when a movie knows what it's trying to say so well that it says it and it says it in so many different ways that you really can get what it's trying to say in a few different ways. And it's not a formula. It's like more complex. Than yeah, that. it's like it's definitely thesis, thesis, thesis. Yeah, it's definitely a complex movie. Like what he's trying to say isn't just a single straight message. It's it's got more of a I don't know. But I do really respect, I think he spent a lot of time writing this movie, and I think that that shows. That's it. That's okay. what I got. <laughs> it's late. I get it. I get what you mean. All right, Wade? Um, I think... A teachable one you could take from this movie, and maybe all, all Todd Solomon's movies, is just the value of discomfort when you're watching cinema. Yeah. Um, I think being shown images and situations that make you squirm, specifically in the way that Todd Solomon's does, where there's like this squirming emanates from like a, like a, a debasing of certain like principles of decorum that are on screen. I think that's really valuable and kind of like shocking in a good way it lets mm-hmm. you it makes at least when i watch todd solens re-examine my moral gut reaction <laughs> to things that i'm witnessing and whether or not that gut reaction is potentially damaging or not so yeah don't be scared of <laughs> violence almost rape sex scenes yeah when you're watching todd solens movies because he's a smart enough guy where he's gonna make it nuanced enough for you to really get something out of it 
Oh, wait, I want to go back okay. to my moment. We can edit this in. <laughs> <laughs> the magic of editing. I think that my teachable moment is don't be afraid to watch a film that seems like it could be homework. Because sometimes watching a film is kind of like homework because it's not an easy experience. Mm. But it, it makes it so much more worthwhile because you actually get something out of it instead of just the entertainment factor. You actually have something to think about and, you know, it might stick with you longer. So I would say challenge yourself. Ooh. I like that. There you well, go. I'm pretty much piggy piggybacking off of what you guys said. Um, with Todd Salons, yeah, he does really show you the value of discomfort and he does make... Yeah. really challenging movies that you have to engage with. And so I guess the thing that you should watch this movie to learn, and you could really learn this from anyone, any one of his movies, is the way in which he does it. What his auteurist qualities are. Um, and especially, we said more so than any of his other movies, he's directly engaging with himself, and not just what he thinks of himself, but what other people think of himself. And so more so than any other movie, you get a really good sense of him where he's coming from and so it's kind of works as sort of a decoder ring for his other movies yeah. especially palindromes palindromes really would not make sense without him having done this exercise um it, it, in terms of you watching it making sense of palindromes but also for how, what it allows him to test out in palindromes because he's laid this groundwork you should watch his directing because while his directing isn't necessarily across the board amazing, he does some very, very interesting things with his way of confronting these uncomfortable topics. And his his directing is a little standoffish and straightforward in a way that presents things calmly. And it shows how he doesn't sensationalize the things that make you uncomfortable. Yeah. He tries to present them in as tactful and intelligent of a way as possible. You have your initial re knee-jerk gut reaction, and then he forces you to sit with it in a way that mm -hmm. doesn't make you more disgusted by mm -hmm. it, but makes you more open and empathetic to it. Yeah. And so this movie, if you haven't seen any of his movies before... Maybe watch Welcome to the Dollhouse first, and then watch yeah. this one if you're interested in going beyond that. Yeah. Welcome to the Dollhouse is funny. Yeah, it's really funny. But in Welcome to the Dollhouse, people forget that Welcome to the Dollhouse has that stuff like that scene where the kid says, you're getting raped, be there, and stuff like that. Where yeah. It's like really dark. It just It's it's about kids, mostly, and uh. so kids have only so much power to be evil. Once he gets to adults... I feel like freaks and geeks couldn't exist if Welcome to the Dollhouse didn't exist. Yes. Oh, definitely. It's a huge precursor in terms of de-mythologizing uh, the high school and grade school yeah. experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If listeners out there are interested in more Todd Solins, like Paolo said, Welcome to the Dollhouse is like kind of the best introduction. And then this... But by far the best movie uh, is Happiness. Happiness is so, so good. It's incredible. It's, it's incredible. It's two and a half hours of Todd Salon, so you kind of need to know whether or not you like him before you watch it, because you're going to get a lot. You're going to get... It's When I was a teenager, which is when I first saw it, it was hilarious, and every year it gets slightly less funny and slightly darker. It just... I, it's, it covers so many different... Uh, like, it covers everything from, like, childhood 
to late elderly life and how all of those things are awful. Like, you will never be happy. Uh, but it does it in an amazing way. Uh, and Spoiler then, alert, the title's ironic. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I would say more about palindromes, but we're eventually going to cover that in a future episode, so I'll stop there. Palindromes is also great. So uh, Let's take a Todd Slans break. Yeah. Palindromes is tough. I'm not going to put you guys through for a while. Uh, but, yeah, I love this movie. And I would highly recommend it. Cool. As would I. Yeah, me too. All right. <laughs> Good <Less enough>. enthusiasm. <laughs> Three stars out of five. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, yeah that's... Yeah, yeah. That's, what, that's a meh. That's good. Yeah, that, I'm glad I saw it. I probably won't see it again. Right. <laughs> You'll be dreaming and, about it tonight. And see. All right. Well, I guess that's it for the Secret Cinema this week. I'm Paolo. I'm Wade. Yeah. And I'm Carrie. Thanks for listening. Thank you. The Secret Cinema is produced and edited by Paolo Caro. All theme songs were performed and recorded by Ricardo Ortiz. Any additional music or samples come from the film covered on this week's episode. All logos and artwork created by Carrie Chafee. You can follow Carrie on Instagram at Carrie Saw This and see more of her artwork at www.carriechafee.com. You can watch Paolo's short films at vimeo.com slash or read more of his ramblings about film at letterbox.com slash The Secret Cinema is a commentary and criticism podcast, and its use of film dialogue and film music for illustrative purposes falls under the fair use provisions of U.S. copyright law. Thanks again for listening.